Welcome back to the show, everybody. We have a very special guest today, not quite in the house, uh, or on the or interwebs, the interwebs, the interwebs. My dude, Adam Strauss. Adam Strauss is a comedian and a psychedelic advocate, I guess you'd call it that, who changed his life uh, with a number of different plant medicines. Actually, uh, it's pretty cool getting his backstory. Um, he's just, he's a very funny dude. I've been tracking for a while. He uh, created. I guess um, his story via comedy called The Mushroom Cure, how he cured his OCD with psilocybin mushrooms, amongst other things. And you'll find all that on this podcast and more. We dive into his personal history, uh, life growing up, his dealing with OCD and um, how he's been able to overcome that, which is something that still is a lifelong practice, uh, which, I, you know, again, I'm still learning on each one of these things. So... Um, really special the conversation that we had and uh what we dive into at the end is what he's into now which is pretty cool because he's doing comedy clips that are basically the news but done in a funny way and he's addressing a lot of the issues that we're seeing in uh the pharmaceutical industry trying to get a stranglehold on plant medicines and so he's brought up some pretty cool interesting things and of course we will link in the show notes to one of my favorite videos that he's done that kicked off uh, all this coming to be with his weekly news reports. So my dude, Adam Strauss, and uh, there's a number of ways that you guys can support this podcast. First and foremost, leave us a five-star rating. That way other people get to see the show. And of course, check out our wonderful sponsors. We are brought to you by Magnesium Breakthrough from my buddies at Bioptimizers. Um, there's a whole lot I could say about this, but really, you know, if you want the lowdown on magnesium, just check out the episode that I did with uh, Bioptimizer's founder, Wade Lightheart. Link to that in the show notes as well. He really breaks down so much about magnesium. It's absolutely phenomenal. But there's been some really cool things that have come to be since I've started using Magnesium Breakthrough. Uh, my work schedule has been super hectic and it's been awesome, but, you know, combining that with a couple of kids and that's one child under one, I think as, as this as this episode releases, she's still not quite one yet. Um, it's a grind. And with that hecticness and everything that's going on in a good way, it's pretty stressful. And getting in all my workouts, practicing meditations, doing everything that I've been trying to do to manage stress has been tough to get that in. But with magnesium, I have felt a subtle change in how I operate. You know, it feels like the background noise is a little bit better. And I've verified this, you know, that in one of the things that Wade talked about is the impact magnesium can have on deep sleep, in particular, restorative sleep, when growth hormone gets released in the night. And I've seen that uptick uh, with the activity tracker that I have with my sleep recorder. However accurate that is, I can feel it. So regardless of the accurateness of these sleep recorders, I definitely feel like I'm sleeping deeper throughout the night since adding in magnesium breakthrough. And I haven't had a single muscle cramp. Now, one thing that I'm going to talk about here is, is I have added in quite a bit of sauna therapy and, uh, and cold plunges. So I'm, I'm excreting and squeezing. I'm uh, opening and closing. I'm doing a lot of contrast therapy in addition, because that helps me manage stress as well. And magnesium, I feel has been a big part of that. Uh, I'm really excited to share this product, Magnesium Breakthrough, with you guys because it is the single most studied mineral in existence. It powers over 600 critical reactions in our bodies, but it's not just any magnesium. The one I recommend is Magnesium Breakthrough because it combines all seven essential forms of magnesium into one convenient supplement. These guys are absolutely incredible. You can get better sleep, fight fatigue and tiredness, and uh, you know, 
I've, I've been pretty stressed as of late, and this has really been something that has allowed me to curtail that stress in a positive way and see through to the light. All kinds of good stuff here. Check it out at www.magbreakthrough.com slash kingsboo. That is M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash kingsboo. Enter code kingsboo10 at the end for 10% off everything. That's magbreakthrough.com slash kingsboo, kingsboo10 at checkout. We're also brought to you today by, brought to you today, we're also bringing this episode to you today. There we go. From The Plunge. The Plunge has been one of the single greatest investments I have ever made in my health and wellness. Many of you have heard me talk about ice baths before, uh, whether it's from first learning about it through Wim Hof on the Rogan Experience or any of these things. Cold therapy is one of the fastest things you can do to change your systemic inflammation. The state change of mind you can have on a neurophysiological level is incredible. Uh, It kicks off all sorts of feel-good chemicals, even though it's something that doesn't necessarily feel good while you're in it. Um, It absolutely has a palpable effect on mind and body very rapidly and in very short time. I'm talking one minute in this ice tub a couple times a day, building up to two minutes, building up to three minutes, building up to whatever you feel comfortable in. Is going to have profound impacts on your fat loss, your recovery from workouts, and how you sleep. Your circadian rhythm is influenced by this. So all sorts of great stuff. The Plunge's revolutionary cold plunge uses powerful cooling, filtration, and sanitation to give you cold, clean water whenever you want it, making it far superior to an ice bath or chest freezer. This is an important bullet point. I had a chest freezer, and cleaning that out was a pain in the ass. And I've had to clean, you know, I, I've had to clean out the plunge due to the fact that I get in this thing. Uh, fresh out of the sauna, fresh out of workouts, and I don't shower. And uh, my sauna had some uh, essential oils sprinkled on top of it, and that started to create soot, which would come up every time I put water on the rocks, even though I stopped adding essential oils. And that soot, uh, I would notice in the cold plunge. So a uh, quick change of the filter, quick dump. They just turned a knob down there, and it went out of my garage out on the front, and I hosed it off, and it was glorious. All that's super easy to change out. Um and their filtration system is hands down the best I've ever seen, the best I've ever felt. The water itself, even with that soot in there and even with me not showering, was still clean water. It just looked dirty down at the bottom. So, and because I'm doing video, I want to do a video for these guys. We needed it spotless and clean to show how perfected this product is. The plunge is safe for indoor or outdoor use, and we've made installation truly plug and plunge. It is absolutely easy. Fill your plunge up with a hose, turn it on, set your temp down to 39 degrees, and you're all set. Plain and simple. Like I said, the most important investment you can make in your health, thecoldplunge.com. Check it out. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash T-H-E-C-O-L-D-P-L-U-N-G-E.com. Use code KKP at checkout for $111 off. And if you don't think you have the dough to swing it, they do take payments. Um, Again, coldplunge.com. Absolutely phenomenal, phenomenal product. Life-changing product. And this might be the perfect complement to that. Higher dose is a company that is sponsoring now. I think this is their first read. And uh, they say, get high naturally underneath is the tagline. You can get your own infrared sauna blanket or infrared PEMF mat at higherdose.com today and use my exclusive promo code KKP75 at checkout to save $75. Heal at home or on the go with Higher Dose's portable infrared sauna blanket. So again, when I when I mentioned some of these, um, some of these companies, a big question mark for people is like, Hey dude, I don't have the dough for a $5,000 sauna or an $8,000 sauna or whatever the case is. And I get it. You know, I used to walk around Las Vegas 
in a, in a fucking sweatsuit, you know, like a, an actual sauna suit that uh, we would use to cut weight in professional fighting. I would, I would cut weight in this in the sauna. So I just started walking around. I'd, I'd go for an hour-long walk outside with a half a gallon of water, and I'd sweat through three layers of sweats with rubbers on, you know, rubber sauna suit. So I, I, I can relate. I call it the poor man's, the poor man's heat shock protein, and uh, that's how I'd do it before I had the cheese to purchase a sauna. But this is one of the most affordable ways that you can get infrared, infrared sauna right now. Experience the powerful benefits of infrared and feel the difference after just one session with higher doses portable infrared sauna blanket. Infrared increases blood flow for faster recovery. You'll get better sleep and have a calmer central nervous system. Plus, it naturally releases a dose of happy chemicals in the brain, leaving you feel euphoric. Hence, higher dose, get high naturally. This is one of my favorite products. I didn't think I would like it. Uh, it it's, it's extremely convenient. The sauna blanket has an amethyst layer to deepen benefits of infrared, a tourmaline layer that generates negative ions. This is important. Many of you heard my podcast uh, with the guy who wrote Blue Mind, Wallace J. Nichols, and that is one of the benefits of being by the ocean or in the water is negative ions. You're going to get that from this blanket, a charcoal layer to bind to pollutants and a clay layer, which is balancing for the heat. If you don't have the budget or the room for a full-size sauna, this sauna blanket is a game changer. For those of you who want to experience the benefits of infrared without the sweat, they also have a really cool new infrared PEMF mat that combines the dual technology of infrared with pulsed electromagnetic frequency for an unbelievable recharging experience. PMF stands for pulse electromagnetic frequency, and it works by sending electromagnetic waves through your body at different frequencies to help promote your body's own recovery process. You will feel relaxed, regrounded, and rebalanced. These mats are built with 20 pounds of healing crystals and have a thick layer of 100% natural purple amethyst crystals in mesh fabric tubes across the entire mat. Whether you deal with chronic pain, work out frequently, or just need a moment to relax, lying on the mat for even a couple of minutes a day will ease your mind and body from the inside out. This is incredible stuff. You know, Many of you have heard me. I've even created a product when I was working out on it called Total Mitochondria. These are the products that help mitochondria. Outside of fasting, um, hot and cold therapy, infrared light, these are, these are, I mean, you're talking about the cornerstones of how you influence the mitochondria, which are the most important things for us to prevent uh, neuro, neurocognitive decline and things of that nature, to prevent diabetes, to prevent all sorts of things, to prevent cancer um, as a metabolic theory, as they've talked about in the past we want to make sure that we're taking care of the mitochondria. And, and these guys at Higher Dose have two products that are highly affordable, and you're going to get $75 off. Check it out over at higherdose.com. That's H-I-G-H-E-R-D-O-S-E.com. Exclusive promo code KKP75. That's higherdose.com. Promo code KKP. Last but not least, we're brought to you by Silent Mode. Silent Mode is a peak performance company aiming to help 100 million people reduce their resting heart rate by 5%, enabling happier, healthier lives. They believe the combination of music, science, and technology can create a new genre of mental fitness training, which can be practiced at home, at work, or when traveling. How do they do it? By providing access to guided mental fitness workouts delivered through a sensory deprivation device. Their toolkit custom builds a custom mental fitness workout program based on biometric feedback to help you breathe, sleep, and nap your way to a better life. Who's it for? It's for connected humans who want to improve peak performance. Silent Mode provides tools and techniques that power the mind and the body. This is one of my favorite hacks. You know, people are always looking for biohacks and things like that. And I guess if it's not an insert or an implant, it's not necessarily hacking your biology. But 
we can reverse engineer brainwaves. We do that through breath. We can do that through binaural beats. And these guys are combining that. And best of all, they're giving you guided coaching through the breath work. So whether you're trying to gear up before a big meeting or a podcast, or even just processing and retaining information from a book, it's a good thing to pay attention to your breath. It's also a good thing to use the right music to change your brain waves and to be guided through that. These mental fitness programs actually helps you do that. Now, as many of you have heard me say, I don't have trouble gassing up. Sometimes I have trouble gearing back down. And their app, Breathonics, has been one of my absolute favorites. I can use this with their power mask, which is a sensory deprivation device all in one with audio. And what that does is it guides me how to shift gears down. This is how I'm going to calm my system down. I'm going to switch from fight or flight sympathetic into parasympathetic rest and digest. It works every single time, whether I'm gearing down for a nap or my sleep at night. I absolutely love this stuff. They're giving 15% off the power mask and six months of free breath on subscription over at silentmode.com slash KKP. That's S I L E N T M O D E.com slash KKP and use the promo code KKB21 at checkout. Again, don't forget promo code KKP at checkout. All this stuff's linked in the show notes. I love you guys. Without further ado, my man, Adam Strauss. Here we go. <laughs> First yeah. time I've been using Zencaster and they have these corny ass uh, <laughs> little little gimmicks up top. I figured I might throw one out. Adam Strauss, thank you for joining the show, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me, Kyle. We met, where'd we meet initially? We meet out in LA at a coffee shop? I think in person, our first in-person meeting was in LA in a coffee shop, but I think initially, no, that's... Yes, it was, right? And then we met subsequently when I was in Austin. But right, that first meeting was in a coffee shop in LA, and that was a few years ago. Yeah, it's uh, interesting how the world has turned since our, I know. Those, those early conversations. Um, I think I'm pretty sure that you know this, this audience is going to know who you are. Um, certainly, we, you know- uh, They fucking better. Yeah, they no, better, exactly. Uh, we certainly follow a lot of- I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't assume they all know who I am, or even most of them necessarily, especially after the last year where I've, I've uh, not that I was ever a, uh, I would never call myself super high profile, but I've been largely laying low over the last year um, as of, you know, of course, live performance has, has been non-existent, though thankfully that's changing. So, so yeah. Yeah, big time. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. Well, let's let's dive into your background because you have an incredible story. You created a comedy tour around it, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But um, what was life like growing up for you? And uh, when did you first notice some of the things that were going on that made you a little different than others? And what were some of your doorways into uh, the newfound you? Yeah, it was. I mean. I don't want this to be a sob story because I don't see my life story as that at all. In fact, I see myself as incredibly fortunate and almost incomprehensibly lucky in a lot of ways. But my earliest memories from childhood are memories of, um, yeah, real distress and conflict with my parents. And it's somewhat puzzling to me, even now as, as an adult, where you know, my parents, I had and have, thankfully, they're, they're both still with us and they're, they're literally with me. They're not in the room, but I'm actually at their place right now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, really just 
remarkable people, people who came from very little in, um, you know, socioeconomically, as well as in my father's case, really, you know, pretty neglectful parents, but somehow built this family where there's just a lot of love in our family. We all, my, my, my parents, my siblings, nephews and nieces, we all really love each other, really enjoy each other's company. And that love was there from the beginning. You know, I, I was thinking about this, something I take for granted that I think so many people can't is I never once doubted that my parents loved me, but there was tremendous conflict from a very early age. And I place, I don't want to say the blame. I was a little kid, but I was, I would say more of an instigator than a reactor in that dynamic. I just, you know, I think I kind of came out of the womb, just very, very intense, very intense. And with a great capacity for joy, but also a, um, yeah, a propensity to to go to a pretty dark, inconsolable place from a very early age. So I'd get into these huge fights with my parents about nothing, essentially. You know, they would tell me to pick up my toys or don't read at the dinner table. And I would just refuse. And, you know, well, you're a parent. I'm not a parent. But clearly, <laughs> as a parent, you need to set some boundaries. You need to set some limits. If, if you tell your kid to pick up his toys and he doesn't do it, you can't be like, all right, you have to. So they were in a tough position and they would, they would, um, you know, they would insist that I do reasonable things they asked me to do and I would refuse and it would explode into these just massive fights. And yeah, I, you know, from this perspective, I see myself as just having perhaps a very, very sensitive nervous system and, um, yeah, being triggered, um, fairly easily. And once I got triggered, it was kind of, you know, I'd kind of go, zero to 60 almost instantaneously. And that persisted as I, as I grew older, I was able to outside of the home. I was fairly normal. I think in a lot of ways, maybe not totally normal, certainly not totally normal, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't losing my shit in public on a daily basis, but, um, but that was there, you know, and that dynamic, I think it colored the way I saw myself in the world. I think I had a great deal of shame, I, I know I had a great deal of shame from an early age because I felt like, wow, you know, I have these great parents and I'm, you know, this terrible thorn in their side, which again, they never said that, but it was clear that, uh, I feel like we're getting pretty deep pretty quickly, but I'll, I'll just, let's, I'll, I'll let's fucking go right in. I love this. I love yeah. this. Okay, cool. Cool. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I have my own podcast called not therapy where one of my best friends in the world, who's a psychiatrist does sort of quasi therapy on me. So perhaps that, uh, <laughs> that has sort of trained me for this, but also, you know, on stage and in life, one thing I've found, uh, one of the few things I've found that's just a, a surefire guideline that helps me live better is real radical honesty and transparency. It just, I feel better when I'm that way. So yeah, I was, um, I believed that I was the primary source of suffering for my parents and siblings growing up. And even now, I don't think that's entirely wrong, but I also think the other part of that equation is I did bring them a lot of joy because when I wasn't in these extreme states of distress, I was an incredibly loving um, kid filled with wonder and curiosity. So, um, so yeah, I do view it. You know, I think a lot of people. I, 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 not to jump the gun, but you know, my Western medical diagnosis would be obsessive compulsive disorder, and I do identify with that diagnosis to some extent. But 
a lot of people with OCD who I talk to will say, oh, I can trace it back to this thing that happened in childhood or intergenerational trauma. And for me, it's, I really feel like there was just a very strong biological propensity that I, I came into this world with. I don't, I mean, I don't think my parents were, were perfect. I don't think perfect parents exist, but I don't, I don't think there's any, there was any terrible trauma, though I will say later on when I was, I was hospitalized twice at age 18 and in these mental hospitals, you do group therapy and everyone had a story of some sort of horrific childhood, sexual abuse or, 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 you know, physical abuse. And it occurred to me, I'm like, did something happen that I just repressed? And so when I began working with psychedelics many years later, there was this fear that I was going to uncover some deep buried trauma that might be liberating, but also might destroy me. And I had several trips where this was sort of the 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 center of these trips, the nexus of this trip was, oh God, there's some terrible trauma. Do I want to see it? I don't know if I want to see it. I can't see it, but I need to see it. And what happened was on one of these trips, I was just like, all right, fuck it. Show it to me. Whatever it is, whatever horrific thing, I know it's there. Show it to me. And it was like a hand opening and nothing inside. So mm. I... Either I've repressed it really, really deeply, but after so many journeys, I, I do feel like, yeah, my own narrative is that, you know, this is more or less the way I was born with this intensity and it caused a lot of, uh, a lot of stress for me and stress for people around me. And that persisted as I got older. Um, you know, on one hand, I was able to function well in the world. I, I did well academically. Uh, I was a musician. Um, as I got older and older, I had more and more fulfilling friendships and relationships, but I could still get to this place of real, you know, almost not, not almost of real, really not functioning where, where the OCD or initially it wasn't OCD at that point. It was just extreme anxiety and perfectionism and the OCD itself, this sort of anxiety and perfectionism, this more free floating thing. It assumed the form of OCD after I had a very, um, a traumatic, I would say, end to a romantic relationship, the, the love of my life, if you will, at that point. Um, at 29, that relationship ended largely, not largely, I'd say almost entirely because of my anxiety and frigidity and perfectionism. And when that relationship ended very quickly afterwards, I started developing very specific compulsions and intrusive obsessive thoughts in a way I never had before. And that was, um, a new level of, of debilitation for me. So that, um, that was sort of, that's sort of the origin story. And yeah, you've, I, I don't want to monologue too much. No, you've, this yeah. is phenomenal. So you, you've covered so much. It's, it's amazing me <laughs> as always, how much of our, our childhoods mirrored one another. You know, I had like a very, uh, violent communication, not violent in the sense of, you know, ass beatings across the board, no domestic violence, but violent communication for sure. A lot of conflict in the house. And, and, but as you were stating it, like that's something that psychedelics brought me. Like there was never any question in my mind on if I felt loved or not. I always felt loved from both parents, mm. um, my sister as well. And that's such a huge piece. I, I, I think I've quoted this before a couple of times, but the study where they showed um, <clears throat> parents who were indifferent who, you know, like, and it's not to point out the, the wealthy, but say there's super rich parents that, you know, let a nanny raise their kids and they're always taking trips out of the country and never really giving two shits about their kids or going to their kids' games or any of that. That type of archetypical 
non-existent parent um, versus somebody who beat their kids. And, and what they found psychologically was that the, the kids who were beat, and this isn't a, <laughs> I always have to qualify this or disclaim it. This isn't like a, a, a thumbs up for beating your kids, but the, the kids who had been abused felt that their parents cared more than the parents that weren't around, than the kids that were raised from the parents that weren't around. Because wow. in the act of abuse, they knew their parents cared. And that to me is fucking mind boggling when you think about it, but very, very big, uh, Big in, in that understanding that that as you propose the knowing, the gnosis of your parents loving you, that had to have been like a huge foundational piece to hold on to. Um, interestingly enough, when I went through uh, my own mental, I don't want to call it a breakdown, but just because um, I, I don't want to call yours a breakdown, but when I when I hit the fucking wall, uh, it was right after college, and what really was the 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 spark for that years of undealt with stuff was the ending of a relationship. So it seems like that kind of that can be an, an, an amazing catalyst for a dark turn for the worse, which if handled okay, can be also an amazing catalyst for the most amazing growth possible. So I'm, as you're telling this story, I'm just seeing so many mirrors and it's, um, it's beautiful to hear all this, brother. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I know we had talked a little bit about your upbringing, and, but I, I didn't know that that trigger for your own challenge, your own mental challenge was a breakup. And yeah, and I think you said it well, it can be a catalyst for incredible growth and expansion. And unfortunately, it was the opposite for me, you know, though ultimately it has led me down this whole pathway. Um, and I can honestly say that I, I don't regret anything. Um, I you know, there are, yeah, if I could have done things differently, I wouldn't be me, uh, which is, you know, kind of a truism and sort of a meaningless statement, but I think it can help, help, help us get through sometimes some dark times where it's like, yeah, you know, it, I, the person who, who reacted differently to that breakup or better yet, perhaps, uh, didn't let those issues cause that breakup. That's, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not that person. I may be becoming that person, but I certainly wasn't that person then. And the person I was then, you know, so much of this to me, it becomes more and more clear the older I get and the longer I've worked with psychedelics. It comes down to the body and the mind. And for me, I've always been a very heady person. I've always identified very much with my thinking, with, with my cognition. And, you know, I appreciate my mind. It's done a lot of good things for me. But, you know, growing up, uh, a child of, you know, my, my dad was a, a doctor. My mother was a teacher. Again, they kind of, they were sort of the first generation that had any, I mean, my father's father worked in a hat factory. Uh, so they were the first generation that, that, you know, had any real means and they were, they're, they're, they're intellectuals. They're intellectuals. And so there was never, no one ever even introduced the concept to me that, hey, you have things that are happening in your body too. These emotions that you're experiencing that overtake you, this is largely a physical phenomena. These emotions do not exist in the brain. The brain doesn't interplay with them. The brain can uh, create them and off, more often I think the brain responds to them. But so my parents, they brought me to therapists at a pretty early age, but the therapy, it was all about trying to understand why are you so angry at your parents? What are you upset about? And I genuinely didn't understand. And I know now, I don't think there was anything to understand. 
I mean, listen, there, there was probably some stuff to understand. I'm not saying it was random that I had these intense reactions, but I really do believe that ultimately it was the way I was wired. And, um, you know, to, to, uh, have these intense physical reactions, physical sensations. I mean, that's all an emotion is a sensation in the body that we then apply some sort of label to that is always, you know, sometimes more precise than others, but is always a word, you know, a finger pointing at the moon. It's not the sensation. So what I believe is these sensations were threatening to me feeling pain. I didn't want to feel pain. No one wants to feel pain. So I crawled more and more up into my head and tried to figure everything out and think about everything. And that's why I think when my, when my own sort of rigid ways of trying to control were challenged by my parents, I would be furious because I didn't want to feel the emotions that were underneath that. And so getting back to when this relationship ended, what happened unfortunately, was there was, I, my heart was broken, you know? And I think more and more, there's an understanding in even Western medicine that heartbreak is not a metaphor. It's an actual phenomena that involves the cardiovascular system. There was a deep, profoundly deep, the deepest I'd ever felt pain that for me, because now I can tune into this pain very easily. And a lot of that is thanks to psychedelics, a pain in my heart, in the center of my chest, this tremendous loss of this woman I'd loved more than I'd loved anyone probably, certainly more than anyone outside of my family. And I couldn't feel that. That was horrifically, overwhelmingly threatening to fear, feel that. So what I did is I went completely into my head and tried to figure out how to make everything perfect. That's basically it. I was like, well, I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't conscious of it, but there was this sensation I didn't want to feel. So let me go into my brain and try to engineer my existence so that everything's perfect. Because if everything's perfect, then of course I won't feel this pain. And that is an addiction in a nutshell. That is the OCD addiction. One of the many lies OCD tells us is that if we can figure things out in our head, the physical sensations that we don't want, specifically anxiety, will change. And it doesn't work that way. We can't ever make physical sensations change. At least I've never figured out a way to do it, but we can allow them to evolve and change of their own accord by not fighting them, by surrendering to them. But if you try to run away from them, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here on this, Kyle, um, you're going to perpetuate them and exacerbate them. And so that's what happened. And my OCD took the form of decision-making, which again, makes a lot of sense because it's like, well, if I can make the right decisions, I'll have the, I'll have, you know, things will be the way I want them to be. And I'd never had a problem with decision-making before. And suddenly, very quickly, every decision I had to make, what shirt to put on in the morning, what side of the street to walk down, um, you know, whether to engage in social plans this weekend, what task to complete next at work, I became paralyzed. I had to figure out the perfect decision in everything. And people say life is about decisions, but I'd go a step further. I'd say life is decisions. Every moment is a decision, whether or not we're conscious of it. So if you're suddenly unable or unwilling to make decisions, you're basically unable and unwilling to live. And my life just ground to an absolute halt and everything fell apart. I mean, the only reason I held down a job is I was actually running my own company then. This was sort of the dot, not sort of, this was the tail end of the dot-com boom or a little bit afterwards and I'd, I'd raised a bunch of money. I was not good at running a company, but I was good at raising money. So I, uh, I couldn't be fired because I was the CEO, but yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't work. 
I was increasingly just isolating myself in my apartment for hours and hours a day and days on end trying to figure out exactly what I should do about every possible decision in my life. And it became suffocating. And I was already on medication. I'd been on medication since I was 18, uh, SSRIs, primarily Paxil. Um, I wasn't diagnosed with OCD until a year or two later when I was, the medication dosage was upped more because uh, dosages for OCD are typically higher than for depression and general anxiety. It's a very stubborn disease and the medications didn't help. And we tried other medications. I mean, I was on ultimately over the course of my uh, OCD career, I was on really every possible SSRI. I was on atypical antipsychotics. I was on benzos and, and nothing helped. And I was getting sicker and sicker. And then I stumbled across a study, to date still the only published study, that there's a few underway now that will be published soon, but a study of uh, psilocybin for OCD. And it was a small pilot study, only nine subjects, but the results were remarkable. Every subject in this study had a significant remission of OCD symptoms, some just, you know, for a day or two. But one subject in the study, it actually seemed like he was permanently cured. And I had very little experience with psychedelics at this point. I had tried them in college, but they really didn't work, probably because I was on SSRIs. But I read this study and I was like, well, I've got nothing to lose, so let's give this a try. And that was the uh, the beginning of this this whole uh, this whole journey for me. It's interesting you bring up the you know the SSRIs uh, with it not working because I've had I had a friend of mine who was on SSRIs and and you know I obviously well not obviously for people that don't know if you have SSRIs with ayahuasca it can be fatal, but for most psychedelics it's not it's not fatal because there's not an MAO inhibitor, but with psilocybin and my buddy you know we we were at a bachelor party. And we were having a moderate, you know, concert dose, probably a gram or two each. You know, most people were playing it pretty light, maybe even a half gram. And dude had seven grams. And he's like, I don't feel it. I don't feel it. He kept saying that. And I'm like, I'm not giving you any more. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're, you're going to eat the whole bag. You're a bottomless pit, man. You know, and of course, he didn't want to admit that he was on SSRIs. I found that out after the fact. But um, interesting how the neurochemistry can affect those two. So the first. The first, uh, describe your first interaction with it. Did you partake with psilocybin first? Because that's what the study was about. How did that look? Was there a ceremony container or just by yourself? What did you do to set that up? Yeah. So this, well, it was, and I, I talk about this. I have a solo show about this called the mushroom cure. And I talk about this, this cruel irony that I finally find this thing that holds promise psilocybin or specifically psilocybin containing mushrooms. And suddenly it was unavailable in New York for whatever reason. I mean, this was, this was over a decade ago. No one in New York had mushrooms. I, I, could, I could get LSD. I could get ketamine. I could get MDMA. But no one had mushrooms. There was uh, one, <laughs> someone, one, one dealer told me, oh, man, there's this post-Burning Man mushroom drought happening right now. So <laughs> I was, uh, <laughs> yeah, which was. Uh, but so I was frustrated and then, well, here's one of these, you know, depending on your, your view of the universe, either a, uh, a great coincidence or something that unfolded precisely the way it was supposed to unfold. So I was, I'd started doing stand-up comedy a couple of years before this. And that was my one salvation. I will say this because no matter how bad the OCD was, when I got on stage, I was in the moment. 
it, you know, people often will say like, oh, you know, you must be so brave to do stand up. But to me, and I've really seen this over the last year, Kyle, as I've not been able to perform, I appreciate it more than ever. There is a great liberation in live performance because you say OCD, the perfectionism, you know, you always want to do things over, get them right. But with live performance, I'm up there and I can't say to the audience, oh, wait, wait, you know what? I didn't deliver that last joke exactly the way I want. Hold, hold on. Let me try it again. And so you kind of have to go with the flow, the pressure of, you know, 60 or 80 or 200 or sometimes only 10 people, but watching you and having an obligation towards them is, yeah, it, there's a great freedom in that. That actually, so it, doing, I, not to cut you off, but I think no, in your no, circumstances, please. that actually might work as a joke once or twice <laughs> to, 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 to really get them into your mind, you know, to let the audience in on the joke, just to say like, oh, oh, hold on one second. I'm going to, I'm actually going to run that back. I didn't, I didn't quite nail the punchline the way that I wanted it to. And uh, I see clearly over here on the left, it didn't really hit home the way that I hoped it would. So let me just, let me just redeliver this. <laughs> that that actually might work. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned that, and you are 100 percent right. And I because I don't, I, I'm, tr I'm trying to limit my monologues here. I have done that, and it has worked. <laughs> and the, but check this out. The reason I realized it worked is there have been a few times. All right, so stand up is stand up. You're you know you can talk to the crowd, right? You you break the fourth wall all the time. You do crowd work. But the mushroom cure, it's more of an it's a pretty intense theatrical monologue. So there is it is comedic, absolutely. But it's, you know, it's 90 minutes of me really bearing my soul. And there's a script. And I can't just break the fourth wall and talk to the audience. So what I've so with stand-up, if sometimes if I'm really distracted by something, a couple is talking too loud in the front row, I can talk about it and I can kind of joke about it. And and uh, but with the mushroom cure, it's like I'm locked in. The lights come up, the curtain opens up, and it's like I gotta stay in this role for the next 90 minutes. But there have been some performances where I've just fucking lost it because <laughs> like one where some guy in the front row was just shuffling his feet. I mean, on the stone floor, but it was this grating sound. So there've been a few performances where I've snapped in, in some ways I've been like, can you stop doing that? Or the lighting was wrong. So I've just broken character and been like, Hey, you know, the lights, it's the lights not bright enough. And whenever I've done that, after the show, people invariably have come up to me and been like, that was part of the show, right? Like that guy in the front row, he was a plant, right? <laughs> like the, the, the tech operator, you told her to, you know, the light was low on purpose. They, cause it so fits in with the character. So that's phenomenal. <laughs> but yeah. And it, you know, and it speaks to a bigger point, which is the, I, I think, I think people appreciate imperfection very much in live performance and in everything. You know, and I, so being a perfectionist and an obsessive perfectionist, it's counterproductive one in the sense that you make yourself miserable and you really constrain your creative output because nothing's ever good enough. But two, people like to see, uh, you know, they like to see some cracks. They like to see some rough edges. So it's not always optimal to do it that way. But, um, but yeah, it's been, oh yeah, I was back to, back to mushrooms. So I was doing stand up, and, uh, I was performing at a club in Times Square where most of the audience is, they're tourists. And this woman came to the club and we started chatting afterwards and, you know, we wound up hooking up and formed a relationship. And it turned out she was a clinical uh, psychologist. She was in grad school getting her PhD. And I didn't find this out in, in Kansas, actually. So we hooked up, we had a weekend together. She went back to Kansas. Then she came back to visit and... I learned on that visit, the first time we didn't talk about psychedelics, but I was having trouble finding mushrooms. I'm like, well, she 
you know, she lives in a college town in Kansas. Like maybe she knows people who can get mushrooms. So I actually asked her, I was like, is there any way you can get mushrooms and mail them to me? And this, um, this started off this conversation between us where it turned out she had cured her suicidal depression years earlier with mescaline containing cacti unintentionally. She was a 15 year old girl growing up in Kansas who was taking cacti just recreationally and had always been horrifically depressed and had really one trip where her depression lifted and it came back to some extent, but never the way it had been there. So it felt like this sort of sign from the universe of this person I met in the most random place in the universe, Times fucking square had actually had the experience of psychedelic healing I wanted to have. And this was 2007. So the, the conversation around psychedelics at this point was dramatically different. I mean, when I would, when I started telling people, yeah, I'm trying to treat my OCD with, with psychedelics. They couldn't wrap their head around it. They're like, wait, wait, no, psychedelics, that's going to give you mental illness. Why would you use psychedelics? It, it just, it didn't make sense to people. So to find someone who had had this experience at a time when these experiences were not talked about and were rare really seemed like, uh, you know, like I was on the right path. And so she introduced me to the world of mescaline containing cacti. And that, those were my first psychedelic experiences were on San Pedro, Peruvian Torch, Berdici, um, for for listeners who, who may not be fully familiar. I mean, peyote is of course the, the best known cacti that contains mescaline, but peyote is, is very rare and, and quite endangered, but there's a lot of species of cacti that are widely distributed naturally throughout the Southwestern U S and all over the world that also contain mescaline. And so that's what, those were my first journeys. And they're pretty, they're, uh, you know, talk, speaking to somebody who has quite a bit of experience right now with, with many different forms of psychedelics, in my opinion, uh, in my experience, Wachuma or San Pedro is of all the plant medicines, of all the master teacher plants, it's it's very light. It's it's a very bodily felt experience. It's lifting and energetic. Um, and it, it's not, I mean, if I, not that I, I don't use psychedelics to be in control of anything, but if I wanted to be in control in any particular ceremony, I would probably select something like Wachuma or um, San Pedro cactus for the fact that it's not overwhelmingly there in the visual space. Uh, I don't feel like I need to buckle up and hold on tight. You know, not like with ayahuasca or hydocilocybin and things of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with that. And so at that point I had no other experience, but that may explain what my experience was, which is it didn't really, didn't really help that much. Um, yeah, I did not have, part of it also is I had a pretty massive psychedelic tolerance and I still do have it. So I got off of the first, actually the first cacti experience I had didn't work because I was still on SSRI. So then I was like, all right, got to get off the SSRI. So I did get off of them. But even months later, I still required very elevated doses. I think because there was this residual SSRI tolerance. And even now, 14 years later, I got off SSRIs in 2007, I still need unusually high doses. And my experiences are not, I, I, I get very little visuals, even on ayahuasca. And um, yeah, my experiences, I don't want to say they're milder because I can certainly go far down the rabbit hole on a high enough dose, but I don't get the visual content that a lot of people get. Hmm. And so particularly with, uh, with cacti, 
when I'd just been off SSRIs for a few months. Yeah, I had these very mild experiences, but I'm grateful for them because it was kind of like, I remember one experience. Uh, I'm in my apartment with this woman and, um, and I'm looking up at just a bare light bulb in in my ceiling. I I was not living large then. I'm literally in my parents' attic right now, so not not. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and this light bulb turned into you know turned into in the way that you get these visuals where I was aware it was a light bulb, but it somehow became a finger and it was beckoning me in a very welcoming way, and that's what. That's what cacti was for me is it was this very, like you said, gentle, soft, kind of like welcome, like, hey, it's safe here, Adam, come on in. And I think it was useful in for someone who who did and does tend towards wanting to control things, making me feel safe. But yes, it was ultimately not a specific, very healing experiences with those. And then I moved on to the world of I still couldn't find mushrooms. I moved on to the world of research chemicals, um, stuff, you know, by Sasha Shulk and 2CE, 2CT7, a lot of the four substituted tryptamines, 4-ACO-DMT, 4-HO-DIPT, a whole range of that stuff. I haven't tried, I've tried 2CB and maybe a couple others, but I have no experience with the the different DMT analogs. What were, what were your thoughts on those? I don't mean to derail you from where you're, you're taking the, oh, no. the conversation, I'm, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated and super curious about some of the stuff that Shulgin got into because I, in large part, you know, it's, it's almost like, you know, Rogan talked about why he never took acid is because there's always some weird hippie guy who hadn't showered being like, hey man, you want some acid? Anybody that has had, you know, some of the Shulgin analogs, it, it, it's generally not somebody that I'm like, yeah, man, let me try this something, <laughs> this, this brand new oh, thing man, I've not- never fucking heard of before, <laughs> you know? You're not hanging out with the right people, my friend. Because <laughs> uh, there is a pretty, I don't know what it's like now. But yeah, there was then, and and actually there is still now, I wouldn't say I'm tapped into it, this sort of drug nerd community um, where um, you know, Hamilton Morris is, is one of the, who I'm not going to implicate him in anything, not that I'm saying there's anything to implicate him in, but but we were, uh, we became good friends at this point in time. Um, we, we met fairly randomly and, and hit it off and, uh, you know, but he talks a lot in his show about this stuff. So there is... Yeah, man, I could, the Shulgin stuff. So there's these four substituted tryptamines, which is a class of medication, well, yeah, I'll call it medication, (laughs) a a class of, um, I'm laughing because now there's this, you know, this thing in the psychedelic movement where everything is medicine, Mm -hmm. you know, people get upset if you talk about, if you refer to it as a drug. And to me, it's, it's Uh, that's one of the, not to derail you again, but Hamilton Morris pointed that out on one of his shows. Like these are all drugs. And I, Love that because if we have like a base commonality and you know, I, what's something I've, I've mentioned on this podcast before, cause it's how do you tell the difference? Well, a good drug will leave you feeling more whole than when you started for days after the experience, a bad drug, you're going to have, you're going to, you're basically paying for a good time on credit. You know, bad drugs will, will, will take something from you rather than give more to you. So that's, that's, but they are drugs. That. They're all fucking psychoactive chemicals. Breathwork is a drug. Coffee is a drug. Sugar is a drug. Well, if we can all call them drugs, then we can decide which ones are good for us and which ones are not good for us. I think it's, it's fine to have a common uh, nomenclature that we all use for, you know, mind enhancing or cha- mind changing substances. Hell yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. And I, I like what you said about you're paying for it with, with credit. I've actually thought about it sometimes where like, you know, with, with, 
what I, I would be, bad drugs, drugs that are bad for me. Uh, you know, alcohol, not that I've ever had a problem with it, but I just hate hangovers, cocaine, which I haven't touched in a long time because that was just a waste of time for me. But I, I did, I did do it fairly extensively for a couple of years in my 20, 20s. Those drugs, it's like, yeah, you feel good now. You're going to pay for it later. With psychedelics, I thought about it recently. It's sort of the opposite where, because for me, the most uncomfortable unpleasant part of the psychedelic experience is the first part is the come up, especially with mushrooms and ayahuasca. And so I kind of look at it like, all right, well, I'm paying, you know, I'm paying the price in advance and now, and then I'll get the good stuff. I, like I don't, that. Lo- I don't totally, I don't totally buy into that though. Cause I think there's value in the come up too, but yeah. Yeah. Drugs. No, it's, you know, these are molecules that interact with the human nervous system in different ways. And, and, uh, but yeah, the, the research sh- chemicals, Shulgin's chemicals, so there's the, the, the stuff that's based on basically the psilocybin molecule, these four substituted tryptamines. So Shulgin essentially took psilocybin and started tweaking that molecule and came up with this class of tryptamines. Um, this, you know, a few dozen of them, I, I think, at least, you know, I probably tried eight or nine of them. And then phenethylamines, which was taking the mescaline molecule and tweaking that. And the tryptamine substitutes... I like them the, you know, and you always have to be leery of expectation effects, meaning even for someone like myself, who I I do feel like I'm able to largely put aside this sort of what I see as a not especially useful dichotomy between quote unquote natural things and quote unquote synthetic things. I put it in quotes because, you know, you can argue that anything synthetic, well, humans are natural. We're part of evolution. We've developed this and we've developed it based on other natural compounds. So I I don't think it's a particularly meaningful distinction. But even though I look at it that way, I sometimes wonder if I'm ingesting a capsule of white powder, you know, say 4-ACO-DMT versus chewing, uh, mushroom bodies, is that subtly going to affect my expectations and my experience? And it may. Having said that, what I would say is my experience is um, that, yeah, it seems like there's a little bit less spiritual heft and chaos with the four substituted tryptamines than with actual mushrooms. Mm. It's it's a little um, easier to manage and, uh, yeah, it doesn't take you as deep in my experience. But the phenethylamines, man, some of those 2CE in particular, um, I mean, I haven't done that in many years, but that is one I would do again, um, though with trepidation, because I actually had a very, very challenging experience once on 2CE. But yeah, I I think 2CE of all the stuff I tried, I would say I have a fraction of the experience with it that I have with LSD or with mushrooms. But based on my limited experience, uh, yeah, I'm not convinced it has any less to offer than mushrooms or LSD. It's it it, it goes deep. Wow. Well, so th- those are the two compounds you'd compare it to. I mean, I know that that Shulgin had said in the past that if if the pharmaceutical industry was ever going to create an aphrodisiac, they would take in whole or in part two uh, CB, and that's what it would look like. So, but I have, yeah. I've no, and I have experience with that. And I think it's phenomenal if I was going to describe that. I mean, some people say it's like a microdose of uh, candy flipping MDMA and LSD because it's energetic and it's, you know, rainbow color-ish, almost electronic, like you're out at Burning Man. Um, but you can still get hard and finish the job in a sexual situation. And, um, you know, it, it encourages you to climax rather than hinders you to climax. 
and uh, and many other properties beyond that. You know, it's not just about physical touch or sensuality, but there's a felt sense of warmth and care, like a loving energy behind it. I've never even heard of 2CE. So you describe that similar to LSD and psilocybin? Not, yes. I would describe it more similar to the classical psychedelics. And 2CB, yeah. I mean, I think the reason you haven't heard of 2C and you have heard of 2CB is exactly that. 2CB, I think Shulgin even talks about it as an intactogen more than a psychedelic in some ways where it enhances physical sensation. Mm. Whereas 2CE is, yeah, you go down that rabbit hole and um, what can I say about it? It's, it's much, much longer lasting. It doesn't have the stimulant or intactogenic effects of 2CB. Again, the caveat being that I, I didn't do, I probably had four 2CE journeys. It, um, there's a sense though, I guess the way I would liken it to LSD and mushrooms is there's a sense of some vast intelligence at work in this molecule or that this molecule is helping you tap into, which I certainly didn't get on 2CB and I didn't get on the four substitute tryptamine, you know, mushroom analogs, but with 2CE, there's a sense of like, there is, there, there is something profound and, and deep and infinite in this molecule, or again, that this molecule connects you to words are kind of inadequate to describe this. And I certainly get that on mushrooms and I get that on LSD as well. And ayahuasca for that matter. Yeah. I like that. And something I've thought of too in the past, I'm not sure if it was a ketamine journey. I think it was a ketamine journey. Um, in just, in just thinking too, and also, you know, the trip reports from John Lilly on ketamine are, are yeah. fucking incredible. You know, it's as good as any, yeah. as any trip report on any other substance. But I've just thought like, if we are inherently not separate from anything, including nature, and we are a part of nature with a capital N, um, then, then of course these are natural substances from that understanding. And then I, uh, I had the vision of, you know, on a different planet or a different realm or a different dimension, it's quite likely that there are plants that produce ketamine or plants that produce 2CE, you know, like the, these things likely exist in nature somewhere else within the, the infinite unfolding from infinite possibility and infinite probability. It's quite likely these are showing up in nature. I love that. I never thought of that, but I a hundred percent, I, I believe that absolutely. These are molecules. These are ways that the laws of physics and chemistry allows certain atoms to combine and yeah. Yeah. Why wouldn't they be naturally generated in, in all the infinite possibility of the universe? So you had, um, <clears throat> you started off with, uh, you started off with the mescaline based compounds and had it pretty easy. And then obviously you were searching for more at this point, you started to cut back on SSRIs. Were you off benzos and some of the other things that are, I mean, perhaps not harder or equal, at least equally hard, you know, from what I've, what I've come to understand, I was never on SSRIs. My sister was, and that was really hard for her to come off of for myself. Uh, I was on benzos and those were, I mean, I went cold Turkey, but apparently that's a big no, no, in in Western medicine yeah. to cut that shit cold turkey. I mean, yeah. you can get, yeah, yeah. There, there is a there is a, a, a deep risk in going. I mean, going cold turkey on benzos is more dangerous physically than going cold turkey on heroin. You're not going to die from going cold turkey on heroin. You actually can die from going cold turkey on benzos. Well, I looked out 
or unless I'm just dreaming up the rest of my life right now, but <laughs> right, we're in the Bardo, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that, just just keep that keep that narrative going. Keep describing it. When did you get to? Obviously, it's not the uh, the benzo cure or the mescaline cure. It's the mushroom cure. <laughs> right. So let's let's get onto the let's let's continue on that path and where you where you find yourself with psilocybin. Yeah. So right, and it's not the the it's not the benzo cure or the SSRI cure because that stuff frankly, really did not help me. You know, and SSRIs, they do help some people. And if they do, that's great. Benzos help some people. But for me, so it wasn't, it wasn't that hard for me to get, let me take that back. It was hard to get off SSRIs. I, I had bad withdrawal effects. I had to taper them dramatically. At that time, I was already off benzos. Mm. Um, so I was only taking Lexapro, but I was taking a massive dose. I was taking 80 milligrams of Lexapro. And I titrated down over a period of months. And I should say, I'd been on SSRIs at that point for 15 years, but I'd already gotten off a couple of times and gotten back on. So I knew how to do it. It took several months. Um, I had a couple of trips in that period. And I could see that, like, yeah, as I worked my way down the benzos, I was getting a little bit more psychedelic activity, but it was still very muted until I finally got off. And I think the first trip, I really experienced any significant effects was maybe a couple of months after being off benzos. And that was on 4-ACO-DMT, this mushroom analog. And it wasn't a profound experience, but it was an eye-opening experience because it was, yeah, just, it, it felt like, it felt like this experience of recognition you know, it was my first time in a psychedelic state, really. And it felt like this experience of, oh yeah, of course, I knew this existed. This, and what is this? I suppose it's this state of presence, this state of okayness, this state of, it was a beautiful experience. It felt like I was really being gifted this beauty and seeing this, this, uh, this beauty that was always there and this peace. That to me is one of the wonderful things about psychedelics is the high from psychedelics. I mean, I've had, as I mentioned, I went through a little Coke phase in my early twenties. The high from psychedelics is infinitely superior because it's not this high of like, oh, I feel amazing now because of the specific neurochemical state I'm in, but it's because I'm realizing things that I'm pretty confident are going to feel equally true to me in six or eight hours when I come down. And usually they do. Of course, the challenge is, you know, then maintaining that awareness of those truths. So I had a taste of that. But yeah, the OCD, it wasn't, it, it didn't, you know, do anything profound with the OCD. And I kept working. Then I got my hands on some LSD, still can find mushrooms. That was the first experience I had that really made a dent in the OCD actually was on LSD. It was my first LSD experience. I'd taken um, four pretty strong tabs, which with the SSRI tolerance, you know, post-SSRI, SSRI, but still have some tolerance, wasn't, wasn't overpowering, but it was pretty strong. And I was lying, I was lying in bed. It was daytime. I was at uh, a friend's place and this woman was with me. My, my friend was away for the weekend and I was really tuning into this sort of intense body buzz energy from the LSD. And then suddenly there were these very loud noises intruding on this, this piece I was feeling. And it turned out someone was moving into the apartment downstairs. And I felt my whole body just go rigid with tension, with fight. Like, I don't want these people, I don't want this noise intruding on this experience I'm having right now. And because I was already so tapped into my body, thanks to this LSD body buzz, 
I was suddenly aware of this physical sensation changing when I started to, to fight reality, essentially. And I could see um, how unpleasant it was, that fight. Like, yeah, I didn't want the sounds to be there, but much worse than the sound was this sudden shift in my physical experience from feeling this, this sort of flowing, energetic peace to feeling this real rigidity. And so I chose to consciously relax my body in a way I'd never done before. And the sounds were still there, and I still didn't like them, but I wasn't fighting them. And that gave me the first sort of taste of what ultimately has proven to be the, you know, the path to my current imperfect, but my current freedom, which is really tuning into the body, tuning into physical experience, not trying to figure it out in my head, but instead coming back to my body. And on subsequent experiences with mushrooms, once I did find mushrooms, that, that was, that connection was strengthened. And so I can certainly talk more about specific experiences and ayahuasca has played a big role in it. But, um, but, but to give you a sort of the succinct version, the, um, my overall experience with psychedelics was, you know, I thought psychedelics were going to, I was going to figure out the OCD in a sense. I thought I was going to OCD the OCD <laughs> and it was because <laughs> that's what OCD is. I mean, everyone with OCD I've ever met has tried to OCD their OCD because that's, that's, you know, the way our minds work, but it actually, it was kind of like the arena changed. Like psychedelics said, Oh no, 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 no. You're, you're playing the wrong game. My friend, you, this isn't about figuring this out in your head. This is about surrendering to what's happening in your body allowing these sensations, allowing these sensations that you've tried so hard to keep out. And, you know, the, the cornerstone of traditional treatment for OCD, even before medication is cognitive behavioral therapy. And the idea behind cognitive behavioral therapy is essentially that with OCD, we have these unwanted thoughts, intrusive thoughts, the stove is on, I'm making the wrong decision or some, you know, you may get taboo, sexual or violent thoughts. And then there's a physical sensation as well, fear, some form of fear in the body. And so we try to control those thoughts and sensations by doing, by with obsessive thinking and compulsive behavior. And it may work for a little bit. Like if someone has a thought, oh, maybe I left the stove on and they feel fear and they check the stove the thought may go away for a little bit. The fear may go down for a little bit, but then it comes back. It's this sort of broken circuit in the brain. It, it, it doesn't stay quiet. Yeah, sure, you check the stove, but you know, did you check it closely enough? Or maybe you should check one more time just to be safe. And so to get freedom from OCD, if you see a good cognitive behavioral therapist, they'll say, don't try to get rid of those thoughts. Don't try to get rid of that fear. If you accept it, then it may or may not go away, but you'll be freed from the obligation to engage in compulsive thinking and, and uh, obsessive thinking and compulsive behavior because you've already accepted the thing that that thinking and behavior is designed to neutralize. So I understood this. But acceptance, it's not something that you can understand. It's a physical, for me, it's a physical practice, perhaps even a spiritual practice, but to keep it a little more pragmatic, at least for now, it's a physical practice. There are things in my body that I have to tune into in order to accept them. And I simply did not have access to my physical experience before psychedelics because I had cut myself off from it so completely. So on many journeys, and I would say mushrooms and ayahuasca were probably the most helpful, but LSD was as well. And some of these research chemicals were too. I continually, repeatedly had this experience of connecting to my body, feeling what was going on in my body, 
and allowing it and finding that once I allowed it, I then had a certain amount of freedom that even if I was feeling fear in my body, if I wasn't, if my existence was not focused on getting rid of that fear, well, then I could do something else. I could listen to music. I could do a social activity. I could go on a hike instead of being so, or even if I'm sitting still meditating, I could focus on other things. But as long as you're trying to get rid of something, that takes up your focus. And that, of course, just makes it bigger. And so that was the sort of capsule version of how psychedelics were and are transformative for me by enabling me to be in my body where I now have the option to accept what's going on there. And I say option because there are times where I still don't want to accept and there are times where I still try to avoid and control, but at least I have the ability to do that now. And I will say to finish off that gradually that ability generalized to when I'm not on psychedelics, I just have a much stronger connection and awareness of my physical experience, um, even when sober now. That's so beautiful, brother. Something that's been, that I've been thinking about is it, it in a in a in a backwards way, or maybe not even a backwards way, but in a direct way, psychedelics have the ability to allow us to embody a felt experience of spiritual teachings. You know, when, when somebody lives with yeah. guilt or shame, rather than reading about Christ's forgiveness, we experience forgiveness by first forgiving ourselves. And then we experience compassion for self, but it's a felt experience. It's like a gnosis that can happen, oh, man, not yeah. guaranteed, right? And it, it feels like, it sounds like you were embodied with the Buddhist teachings where you know, you know the, the suffering is caused from aversion to the thing you don't want or clinging to the thing you do want. And it, it seems like without you know, having grappled with that, or maybe you had already started to dive into some of those teachings, but that felt experience of, I'm going to recognize this first in my body and I can accept it. I don't have to have aversion to the thing. And with that, you disempower the very thing from haunting you on, on ad infinitum within the mind. Yeah, no, you put it perfectly. And I did have some experience I, with, with Buddhism. I'd gone through an obsessive meditation phase for five years where- uh, Meditated so hard. <laughs> I'm, it became an obsessive thing. And, and to the credit of, uh, well, I can't remember the name of the, you know, the master I was studying under, meaning it's not sensei, is it? whatever it is. Uh, she identified it where it was like, be, basically meditation. Well, I, I have a line in the mushroom cure where I say, you know, med I was meditating for, it was basically, you know, two hours every day for like five years. And because if I could just attain enlightenment, everything would be perfect. If I could just attain enlightenment, everything would be perfect. If I could just attain enlightenment, everything would be perfect. <laughs> Technically, that's not a mantra. <laughs> <laughs> but that really was my mantra. I was looking at meditation exactly the opposite way that, that one should as it's, you know, the idea is of course, to be present in the moment. To me, it was a means to an end. It was like, if I can just achieve enlightenment, if I can reach this perfect state, then all my problems will be solved. And that I should mention is also how I looked at psychedelics for a long time. If I can have this perfect ego death plus four mystical experience, then all of my problems will be solved. And without getting into too much detail here, that, that is a big part of the mushroom cure. And needless to say that, that, came back and bit me in the ass hard where I pushed things too hard, too fast with psychedelics, looking for this perfect experience to fix me. And, uh, and I had some, you know, pretty, pretty terrifying experiences. Yeah. I've overreached myself on a couple of journeys. There's no, <laughs> no doubt. And, uh, 
it's funny, uh, you know, the recognition of that in hindsight is perfect. It's like, oh yeah, I was trying to figure out the nature of consciousness and got fucking whacked. Um, <laughs> yeah, th- those those can be great lessons too. Um, so look, I want to I want to talk. I, I, I want to be mindful of our time here. I've got Paul. You know who Paul Levy is? Who that name sounds? He wrote. Familiar. He wrote who the Quantum that? Revelation and uh, Dispelling with Tico. He's actually written another one no, too. I don't think I do know. He's him. a fantastic guy. Uh, anyways, I first heard him on on Chuck's podcast. He's coming up here at the top of the hour, uh, running these back oh, nice. back to back today. Unfortunately, but um, with us with about twenty minutes left, I want to dive into the current state of uh, psychedelics. You know, you sent me this fantastic video. I'd love to share oh, with my you. audience too, if that's available yeah. for people. I absolutely oh, love yeah, to. Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, we'll link we'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah. This is incredible, and it really gives people a um, a visceral experience of your comedy, which is flawless. You do just like the you know <laughs> you. the old Eddie Murphy movies where you're each character within the film, and you, you absolutely <laughs> crush it. But uh, let's let's talk about you know, and I've had this conversation with Paul Check before, either on his podcast or mine or both, where. You know, there's a lot of hope with the psychedelic renaissance and with all the big players in the game wanting to study and the new science that's coming out that verifies what the ancients knew for thousands of years. You know, and and I think that that can be a good thing. But, you know, as you and I have talked about, there is um, there's some question marks that remain, you know, with uh, the the nature of the corporate world, with the nature of. Um, how big business works where you cannot patent nature itself. So they like to take things and tinker a little bit. And uh, similar to those question marks that you had around synthetics versus non-synthetics, I often have a lot of time people will ask me, I mean, even my wife for a long time was like, hey, I'm cool with psilocybin and ayahuasca, but I'm not cool with with LSD and I'm not cool with ketamine. You know, And it was almost a bias uh, towards synthetics until mm. having some beautiful experiences, microdosing LSD and uh, she's still not a fan of ketamine, but you know, maybe one day I'll get her to swing, <laughs> swing that direction. <laughs> but the point is, you know, you know, aside from the conversation on synthetic versus natural, because I think we have covered that. Um, what are some of the issues, the core issues that you see right now, with you know everybody supposedly being on board with this? On this meaning psychedelics in yeah, general. Yeah, psychedelics in general, you know, corporate, yeah, corporate, the corporate world. Uh, you know, you, you've spoken about yeah. a couple of novel things that, that are being created right now. And um, I think it's important to track. You know, I, I didn't even, I until you brought it up in your video, I didn't even realize that there was a, a stop the psychedelic trip shot that people could take, you know, D- well, they're, dive into they're working that. on it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, well, yeah. So this video, it's, it's the, the trip report. It's going to be. This is the first episode. It's 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 an episodic show. I'm hoping to knock them out every every few weeks. Um, sort of a comedic psychedelic news show. But I make points that I feel passionately about. And the first one is about this. Uh, yeah, precisely this. We're seeing this massive mobilization of corporations and startups trying to really. For a lot of them, it is a cynical. You know cash grab, no question. But for some of them, I think there are people who have, you know, who really truly believe in the power of psychedelics and want to make them more accessible, want to offer them in novel contexts. But yeah, the overall... So specifically in this this first episode, I talk about these attempts that some of these companies are making to essentially take the, uh, you know, take the hallucinations out of hallucinogens, take the psychedelic experience 
out of psychedelics and instead have this idea that you can just have the benefits of a trip without actually tripping. And on one hand, you know, I love science. So I, I'm, I'm cool with anyone doing any sort of research that may advance human knowledge, especially knowledge related to psychedelics. On the other hand, I feel like I have a few pretty serious concerns. One concern is that, well, first of all, we have, we, we have compounds that we know work. We have an increasingly robust body of data showing the efficacy of MDMA for PTSD, showing the efficacy of psilocybin for smoking cessation and major depressive disorder, showing the efficacy of, um, you know, of, of the tr classical psychedelics for very widespread, very um, debilitating conditions. So is it really a good use of resources to say, okay, well, yeah, but can we, can we make psilocybin that doesn't make you, you're saying like psilocybin doesn't make you trip. I mean, so to me, it's almost beside the point if you could, because I'd rather see that resource going into making psilocybin therapy that we know works more readily available. That's one concern. Another concern though is, um, well, in my more paranoid moments, I, I can envision a scenario, and I haven't heard anyone else talk about this, and maybe I am just being paranoid, but let's say someone comes up with um, something that you know has psilocybin-like effects on, let's say, um, depression. So it, it produces benefits, maybe not as strong benefits, but it produces some benefits uh, for depression without actually making people trip. Now, in theory, that could be a good thing because there are going to be people who just aren't going to be down with a psychedelic trip. But one concern I have is we see the drug pharma industry is they spend more money lobbying than any other industry in the U.S. They spend more on natural resource extraction. They spend more than transportation. They, they are extraordinarily aggressive in protecting their interests. So it's not hard for me to imagine a scenario where pharma companies you know, show up to the FDA with a bunch of studies showing that this trip-free psilocybin um, clone helps with depression and say, yeah, we want approval for this. And also, since we have this now, really, there's no reason to allow people to use psilocybin, right? I mean, that's just why do we want people to have these potentially dangerous destabilizing experiences where they can get the benefits without it. So my concern is that some of these pharma companies may not be content to just offer trip-free alternatives to classic psychedelics. They may try to constrain the ability of, for, for other clinicians and researchers and patients to access classical psychedelics. Yeah, that, to, that's not being paranoid. I mean, that's just looking at our history, right? Like that's <laughs> right. That's that's not that that is uh, that's par for the course, you know. And yeah, I mean, the beer, the alcohol industry being a, a major opponent of marijuana legalization, but not exactly the same. But you know, someone saying, "Hey, we have something that does this already," so, you know. Yeah, you get it. Yeah, absolutely. And what a, and I guess the, the you know you, we, I, you brought up. Sorry, go uh, go ahead. And I'll bring it back. I'll just really briefly, the third concern I have is, all right, so first of all, putting my cards on the table, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think you're going to come up with something that takes away the trip and is as effective. It may have some benefits, but I think it's going to be radically less effective. But even if it does work, and this is how I conclude this video, I don't want to give it all away. I think what we need, we don't just need individual healing at this point in human history. We really need collective salvation. And I believe, and of course, this is not a novel view to me, Terrence McKenna and many other people have propagated this view, that humans co-evolved with psychedelics, and that's not coincidental, that these experiences are integral to the development of humanity and are integral to having a functional, healthy uh, human species. 
and that we try to exist without them at our peril and that the increasing um, just chaos and, and, and agony of history that we're seeing, I believe a lot of that can be traced to the divorce from psychedelic experience in the Western world. So I feel like we actually need these experiences, not just to make us better as individuals, but to make us better collectively. We need the experience of empathy, of altruism, of deep connection to the universe. So that, that's, that's my third and I'd say my deepest concern about this movement, about the movement to yeah, strip out the psychedelic experience. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, there's, there's um, even, even taking it a step further, you know, the divide from nature's kitchen can be thought of in all ways. We have frankenfoods and uh, diet Cokes and chemicals added to all sorts of shit sprayed on the ground, added to our soft drinks, added to our tap water. And so, you know, the closer we get back to, and this isn't to, to um, fantasize about the past or tribal living or any of that, it's just to say, like, can we entertain the best of both worlds? Can we live in a technological world that is advancing and, and, you know, but, but still be able to connect back to our roots, to, to still be able to hold the container of ceremony around these experiences rather than medicalizing the experience? I mean, so many people that have had ketamine, I have many friends that have had pretty good results uh, with ketamine in a clinical setting. You know, I asked them about their experience and they're like, oh, you know, they put on classical music, give me a shot and then walk out of the room and come back 45 minutes later. I'm like, no one's there holding space for you. You know, like this is not, yeah. that, that, that isn't the move. I'm not saying every single substance that needs to be taken has to have Icaro sung to you live. That, 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 that'd be a stretch, right? And there's certainly not enough people in the world who are qualified to provide that type of guidance. But at the same time, there is something to be said for doing ayahuasca with a curandero who sings Icaros to you live versus listening to an iPod. They're two different experiences. Yeah. There's no doubt. So um, yeah, we, we have some, some gaps that we need to bridge for sure. And that's definitely uh, something that's been on my mind. Also, you know, one of the things that we talked about with this, uh, you know, the the end of the trip shot, you know, and 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 taking the psychedelic experience out of psychedelics, you know, really they're they're one and the same thing. It is going through the challenging experience that makes it worthwhile. It's it's really it's facing your deepest darkest fears that allow you to surrender to them and offer you a new lens in which to see the world, a shift in perspective that takes place only by doing the firewalk. You don't get there, you know, it's not gifted to you. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it's, right. it's the equivalent of, um, you know, somebody reading about forgiveness in a Bible versus me understanding how I must forgive myself through my own understanding on a plant medicine journey. They're two solid to completely different experiences. You know, and if we rob somebody of the initiation that takes place through facing those fears and, and, and really out of, out of desperation, surrendering and accepting and seeing outside the box. If we, if we don't get that, then we're really taking the, the, the beauty away from it. You know, it's like, it's, and it, again, it kind of reminds me of um, even on a, on a lesser level, what they did with cannabis when they're like, oh yeah, THC is the one. So they <laughs> strip out all of their alkaloids right. in, in favor of THC. And all of a sudden there's no CBD left in the plant. And they're like, oh, wait a minute, CBD is awesome. Let's do that. And now you've got 0% THC CBDs that are out. And it's like, all right, but uh, nature did this a little differently. There was, they were inclusive of all these things, right? In the cannabis plant. And I think, Absolutely. you know, we, it's, it's cool to see which alkaloids do what on a scientific level. And maybe we can, you know, produce some different, um, 
you know, I, I have uh, buddies that are doing some pretty novel stuff at University of Colorado in the mycology department, and they're figuring out, you know, what does what. And if they can crossbreed one strain with another strain, then they can enhance some of the effects of some of the different alkaloids. That's all good science. But don't delete out some of these, you know, more profound ones, especially just with the knowledge and know-how that we have around tryptamines themselves. You know, DMT, ayahuasca that contains NNDMT, uh, 5-MeO-DMT, psilocybin or psilocin, and LSD, all are hitting these similar receptor sites, all of which are improving the hardware and software of the brain. So wh- where's the workaround from, from those particular molecules? Like there's, <laughs> we don't need to reinvent the wheel here. These, are, these work and they work for a very good reason. Yeah, and I don't think we're going to get a wheel. I think we're going to get some weird dodecahedron, <laughs> you know, <laughs> lumpy thing that that limps along. And yeah, I mean, I think it's telling that the people who are leading these charges to develop these trip-free treatments are are not people who who have psychedelic experience themselves. So far as 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 I know, I, I yeah, I think it is. Um, I think it is misguided. So. But yeah, it's, you know, the general trend though to corporatization, I think it's inevitable. And I think it's inevitable. I don't think it necessarily was inevitable, but I think at this point it is. And I, I, it's, who knows? It it causes a lot of concerns, especially when you see some companies like Compass Pathways, you know, patenting, they were granted a patent for psilocybin. Now, not all psilocybin, the specific synthesis of it, but it was a, a patent that almost certainly should not have been granted based on the fact that it used prior art from going back to Albert Hoffman, his synthesis of psilocybin. So we're, what we're seeing is what we should have expected to see that psychedelic corporations are no, they're, they're corporations first, the psychedelic part is second. And maybe not all of them, but certainly the biggest players in the space, companies like Compass and MindMed, are using incredibly aggressive IP strategies, constraining the ability of other researchers to get uh, psilocybin for their work, even nonprofit researchers. So I think there's the nonprofits, MAPS, Hefter, Beckley, I think they, you know, they operated in in an atmosphere of cooperation and good faith for decades because no one wanted in on this from a money perspective, you know, no one was going to, no corporations were going to touch this. So of course they shared all their research freely. Of course they, they didn't develop a patent strategy. Um, but that's not entirely fair. And I, we don't have time to get into that, but I, I'm not saying they did anything wrong. I'm saying that the, that we're, we're entering a new chapter now. And I think it's hard to say how it's going to play out. The one good thing though, I will say about corporatization is if there's one thing we know from history, from us history, uh, something, if people are making money, if corporations are making money off something, it's a lot less likely to be banned. I mean, from guns to prescription medication, if you have something that is, um, you know, that's listed on the New York stock exchange, you're a lot less likely to, uh, to the government is a lot less likely to, to, you know, to move in prohibition strategies. So it could, in a sense, protect psychedelics to some extent, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a different world. And I would be arrogant to pretend to have any real idea of how it's going to play out at this stage, but I am concerned. Well, yeah, I'm concerned as well, but we can sit in the uncertainty as, uh, most of the plants (laughs) (laughs) remind us of the importance of, we'll, we'll sit in the uncertainty of it. Uh, Brother, it's been so fantastic having you on the podcast. I definitely want to do it with you Likewise. again. Um, where can people find you online and what do you have coming up in the works? So, so yeah, so the trip report is my 
psychedelic news show. So I'm, I'm focusing on that. Uh, but the wonderful thing is live performance is coming back and man, I'm, I'm, so eager to get back on stage. So I'll be doing stand-up um, in New York starting in in June. I will likely be doing a run of the Mushroom Cure. Hopefully in July, we're trying to line that up and beyond. So yeah, socials are, are Adam Strauss, Adam, A-T-O-M, like Atomic. That's not how I refer to myself. Uh, just someone else already had the A-D-A-M. So A-T-O-M, S-T-R-A-U-S-S is the social handles. And then uh, themushroomcure.com. I'll have tour dates up there as well. And uh, yeah, look forward, to, uh, look forward to connecting again, Kyle. It's been great catching up. Yeah, absolutely, brother. Thank you so much. We'll link to everything in the show notes. Uh, just fantastic. Have a beautiful day, my friend. Wonderful. You too. Thanks. 